Jamie. Yeah. Have you written the intro? Big time. What's it going to be? It's a little song. <laughs> Go on then. Hit me with it. Okay. Here it goes. What would I eat in a nebula? I'd have asparagus and mustard. Oh yeah, baby space. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting, putting the, the ace, ace back, back into, into space. space. Well, we're in. We're in. Podcast 21, I can't believe it. We're here. As, or, as my, or as my kids say, 21. So annoying. <laughs> and then slam the door. Yeah. Um, Matt, what is, uh, what's today all about? Today, we're going to do nebulas. Sweet. Under your say-so. Yeah. It did give me an opportunity to put loads of my pictures on the blog. Oh, <laughs> blog is looking really sexy today. Uh, Matt, where do we start? Well, let's talk about what a nebula is. Let's go for it. Nebulas used to mean anything that wasn't really a star, these kind of smudgy things that astronomers started to notice. Like clouds, Latin for cloud, in fact. So ah, the, if, you, if you Yeah, if you lived in Roman times, you'd been looking up and go, oh, there's a nebula. Right. But you would have meant something completely different. So I think one of the really interesting nebula, of course, that's no longer a nebula, is the Andromeda Nebula. So is that the nearest one to us? No. Oh. See, Andromeda Nebula is is actually one of the most distant objects you can see with the naked eye, if not the most distant object you can see with the naked eye. Right. I.e., it's another galaxy, but it's our nearest galaxy, so it was really quite big, and so you can, you can see it with the naked eye. Uh, Edwin Hubble and uh, and a few others, Vesto Slipher. Yeah. Were, were the type of were, were really only at the beginning of last century, you know, in the 1900s, were the first people to realise that these weren't just in our Milky Way, but were outside of the Milky Way. That these were actually other galaxies. Right, amazing. So, do we know how many we've actually got in our galaxy? Oh, do you know what? Do you know? I don't know the answer to that. Oh well, there's one for the listeners. If you know. Get in touch. One well, thing is there'll be loads that we can't see because we're in a sort of spiral arm. And, and, and one of the things that, that with... We'll, we'll get on to what t- the different types of nebulas. Yeah. Uh, but most of the nebulas that are um, these big clouds of gas happen in the, in, in the arms of the, of, of the galaxy, in the sort of spiral arms, because that's where the concentration of this gas is and that's where all these stars are being built, etc., etc. So you can, yeah. you can use nebulae or nebulas as your plural. I'll go with nebulae. Oh, nebulae, OK. So you, yeah. uh, they can be sort of uh, diffuse nebulae, can be sort of split into three. There's your emission nebula, reflection right. nebula, and your dark nebula. Ooh. Ooh. So emission nebulas are things like the famous um, nebula in the Sword of Orion. OK. Uh, nice. Uh, which is uh, M42, not the motorway near Redditch. No. But, uh, the Messier object 42. What happens there is the emission nebula is where uh, stars are heating up nearby gas, mm. and that gas, like Jonathan McDowell was explaining, uh, starts to heat up and, and give off light. And if it gets very, very hot, it gives off X-rays. But in right. this case, um, what happens is it gets so hot and you get uh, emission bands like hydrogen in the gas starts giving off a certain wavelength of light and then sulphur will give off a certain wavelength of light, and oxygen uh-huh. will give off a certain wavelength of light, and you get all these pretty colours. Wow. 
So that's a mission nebula. A reflection nebula is actually where uh, they're reflecting the starlight. So something like the Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters as people call it, that is a classic reflection nebula where it's, it's these clouds of gas that are reflecting the, um, the, the starlight. And so then, here's a question for you, Matt, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I think that it will probably be mirrored by a lot of our listeners. So if these are, if these are clouds of dust and gas... Why do they stay the same? Why aren't they moving? Or are they moving? Oh, they are moving. I mean, these things are so far away that actually, they'll have, by the time you got to them, they'd have changed shape by the time... because the, But they are changing shape. But you, you've got to realise how absolutely enormous these things are. You know, I'm they're, just they're, slightly confused that if we, see, if we constantly see, for example, the Horsehead Nebula... Mm-hmm. Well, um, Horsehead, ne- let me be- Horsehead Nebula was the next type of nebula. It was a dark nebula. So that's where right. a big cloud of dust is in front of something very, very bright. And so you can see its, uh, uh, its silhouette, essentially. And that yeah. is the dark nebula. And the most famous being the Horsehead Nebula of, uh, is that. I'm just that. confused as to why we keep going back and it doesn't change shape. But uh, like you say, is it just because it, it the is, light takes so long th- to get this to type of, Yeah, this type of nebula doesn't change shape very fast because it's... Uh, imagine just how big these things are. They're not yeah. the size of the solar system. If you look in a nebula, you can see lots and lots of stars. And the yeah. reason why you can see lots of stars in the nebula is because it's absolutely vast. It, mm. it, it's, it's thousands of light years across. It's a big old place. In fact, some nebulas are even millions of light years across. So they're so huge that they are moving. They're probably moving extremely fast. But when you're that big, you don't notice the movement. I mean, how amazing is that? Uh, uh, do you know? And what's actually really incredible about nebulas, and this is not this is something I didn't know until I did this research for this, mm. is that, and I think this is just my favourite fact now, is that something like the Orion Nebula, that cloud of gas even though we can see it once once you sort of i mean you can see it through a telescope the orion nebula uh, and um it's the jewel in the three the three stars that hang down from orion's belt right and you, you can you can if you train your telescope at that you can just about see this nebulous gas you can't really see the colors because your eye isn't that sensitive and and mm. there's a thing actually really they're not there's not much light coming off them, but once you start taking sort of long exposure photos, you can bring yeah. them up quite nicely. Um, so they're so undense that they're, they're actually uh, even vacuums on Earth are more dense than these nebulas out in space. <laughs> so, yeah, what was the one that weighs about two kilograms? Oh uh, well, I mean, look, like, yeah. If you if you took like if you a huge nebula and, yeah. and, and 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 condensed it down, yeah, it's. Some of them are only, yeah, aren't even as heavy as the Earth, you know, even though they're, you know, thousands of light years across. Of course, some of them are actually these huge, massive nebulous gas clouds eventually collapse down and they're so heavy because they were millions of light years across that they make stars, etc., etc. But, um, yeah, because one of the sort of fictional things that you see in um, in things like Star Trek is when, yeah. uh, and a classic episode of Star Trek is the Wrath of Khan, where Captain Kirk is trying to hide from Khan, and what he does, he finds a nebula and, and flies into the nebula and sort of hides in the clouds. And of course, actually, it's nothing like that at all. When you get to a nebula, you can barely see it. 
and in actual fact it would just look like open space when you, by the time you got there you could barely oh. you would barely be able to make out the colour so as you another flew disappointment to, from yeah, sci-fi yeah. yeah it is I mean I wonder how close you could get to a nebula before you could clear, see, clearly see the colours with the naked eye and I actually mm. don't think you ever really could because it's actually they're just so dim really and because the Orion Nebula, the, the amazing thing about it is that you can just about pick it out in a telescope, mm. but it's twice the size of the moon yeah. in terms of its, in how much space it takes up in the sky. Yeah. Its apparent size is twice the size of the moon. And actually, I did one of my crowning achievements is to get a letter published in the Sky at Night magazine oh, where, yes. I, where, where I'd taken a, uh, all my photography from my back garden in Surbiton. I'd managed to I basically put them all side by side so you could see the apparent size of these things. And the Orion yeah. Nebula dwarfs the moon that I've taken in the middle. Wow. And, uh, and you think, well, why can't you see it? Well, because it's so faint. That's it. Yeah. You know, these things are really, really faint. So these these are your kind of emission nebula, reflection nebula, and dark nebulas are really, really faint. And things like the Horsehead Nebula, you wouldn't really be able to see without photography at all. So you can't see it through a telescope. The only reason why you can see it is because you can take a very, very long exposure. Long exposure, right, And normally right, right. you can only do that if you're looking at this hydrogen alpha emission band where this red nebulous gas, where the hydrogen emits at a certain frequency when 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 it uh, gets heat, heated up it mm. emits light at a certain frequency and if you if you really concentrate your camera at that frequency you can see the nebula in much more detail it's fantastic matt so, what's your favorite nebula uh my favorite nebula i think is the pac-man nebula ah i saw that yesterday yeah i think that's a really good one i really i also like the dumbbell nebula I love uh, well. Of course, there's the Cat Eye Nebula, but I've re- I've not been able to really get a good picture of that because it's quite low on the horizon in, here in England. The so, crab, uh, the crab is good. The crab is because it just looks it? like loads of red lightning. Yes, yeah, so the, well, so, yeah. So the Crab Nebula is something completely different again. So that's what's known as a um, supernova remnant. Hmm. So way, way, way back in 1054. Arabic and Chinese astronomers actually saw this new star in the in the night sky, mm. and and they wrote about it, and this thing got uh, fainter and fainter and fainter and then disappeared, uh, and then astronomers much 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 later f- found the Crab Nebula, and if you do very very careful measurements, you can see that it's expanding still, yeah, and uh, so it is moving. So that whole idea of nebulas not moving, actually, you can, if you take very, very careful measurements, see them moving. And if mm. you reverse it backwards, you'll find that uh, it will be exactly a point of light in about 1054. So this is this um, this is the the clouds of the star that's basically expanded out into space, and and the core of the star has gone flying off, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Now I believe the Crab Nebula has a, a neutron star buzzing in the centre left and over from that Matt do we know why it was called crab because I'm looking at it now and oh, I, I still can't see no. it I can't <laughs> see a crab well your, your mind always wants to see patterns and, and shapes and you know when you look up oh, the clouds yeah, no. when you yeah. look up at the clouds and you can yeah. see a dog and that sort of thing well when you look through like old telescopes at the crab nebula 
it looked a bit like a crab. So people's drawings of it, they, it kind of looked like a crab. But, but now you get pictures from Hubble or even my picture from my back garden, you can see much more detail and that crab-like features have disappeared. Uh, and it's the same with the Eagle Nebula as well, where, where you've got the Pillars of Creation, which actually I think is probably my favourite nebula, Pillars of Creation. It's pretty good, and, isn't it? Uh, That's yeah, a good so, name too, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, Hubble did the really famous picture of the, of, of the Pillars of Creation because there's these huge, huge, huge towers of dark dust and in that dark um, interstellar cloud is, is stars being born. And it's like fantastic, but the, the the nearest one, I think, the nearest star birth nebula is the M forty two Orion Nebula. So they're kind of like star factories, then. Yeah. So yeah, are they, these are particularly emission nebula are yeah are really are star factories. They're they're huge gas clouds that as they collapse, they sort of they start spinning. And uh, and falling in on themselves, Matt. We should start a band called Star Factory. Oh, yes. I mean, I can't believe it hasn't been done yet. To be honest. So what I tell you, what's a really cool thing is when something like a supernova goes off, hmm. the shock wave from that star often hits like uh, the dust, this dust in a nebula, and then that's what causes it to start collapsing in and becoming a new uh, star and and solar system. So and so, all this material then from from these supernovas gets mixed in with that cloud, and so you get these heavier elements, and so you can have right. life, for example. So you know, if it wasn't for nebulas oh, and exploding stars, there there would be no life on Earth. It's the classic "we are made of stardust" moment. Wow. Yeah. So we're going to have to tip the cat to Carl Sagan yeah, again, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we are. But the. Uh, one of the things that, that we should mention is Messier himself. Charles Messier. Oh, uh, yeah. We, we, I keep saying this M42 is Messier 42. And he, basically, Charles Messier had a, a catalogue of nebulae, of which there was 103. Hmm. And basically, he, he made this catalogue because he noticed that these were fixed objects in the sky and weren't moving. And he didn't want astronomers getting them mixed up with comets because that's what he was interested in. He was interested in comets. So he right. made this catalogue and said, you know, ignore these things because they're not comets. They're something, they're nebulas. And of course he didn't yeah. know what they were. Uh, and then William Herschel, the great William Herschel, uh, the discoverer of Uranus, uh-huh. etc. Uh, he um, and his sister Caroline Herschel... Uh, published a catalogue of a thousand nebulas and star clusters uh, in seventeen eighty six. I mean, this is ages. And, that's yeah, crazy. It's, yeah, it's crazy. It is crazy how long ago all this was. But you know, they did had hmm. no idea what they were, and uh, and and it was only in nineteen twenty two. Nineteen twenty two. It's not even a hundred years ago. There was a thing called the hmm. Great Debate, and this was uh, a chap called Shapley. Uh, and there's a Shapley catalogue as well of, of dark nebulas, I think it is, uh, was mm. arguing in favour that the Milky Way as the, was the entirety of the universe, that that was it. And there's another chap called Curtis right. who con, uh, contended that Andromeda and other similar nebulae, these spiral nebulae, were island universes, i.e. other Milky Ways. And it was uh, these, this island universe idea was uh, invented by the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, who also believed ah, the great yeah, that spiral nebula, nebulae were extragalactic. So Immanuel Kant in some ways predicted these, um, that, the, that the universe wasn't the Milky Way. And it was Edwin Hubble uh, who, who basically started to collect the spectra from these diffuse nebulae and proved that it was, they were indeed outside of the um, 
Milky Way. Smart cookies, indeed. Talking to Jonathan McDowell the other day and Hubble Telescope of, of uh, Chandra Telescope and, and a lot of the space telescopes have revealed so much about what these nebulae are and Hubble obviously has returned the most incredible images of it. And I'd like to just quickly note note something about the Hubble pictures is that they're not yeah. necessarily... There's a thing called Hubble palette, which is uh, yeah. instead of taking pictures in natural light, i.e. red, green, blue filtered light, yeah. uh, they replace the red, green and the blue with these uh, spectral lines. So, they, it, so okay. you will sort of take a picture in hydrogen alpha Annoying someone with a drum kit has just started in the room next door. Oh. <laughs> so if you hear drums, it is drums in the background. So we go Hubble. <laughs> just drumming along to our nebula. Yeah. So it. Hubble Palette. Well, maybe they're sort of tuning up for your new song. That could be that. So <laughs> Hubble Palette is where they've replaced red, green and blue with the hydrogen alpha emission, the oxygen emission and a sulfur emission lines. And what that means is that you get these much more detailed pictures and they kind of have these beautiful gold colours and blue colours and deep red colours. But it's not actually how they look. However, it does make the pictures of nebulas much more spectacular and much more detailed. There, there's a scientific reason for doing it, is, is the fact that you can see more detail. In it. Absolutely, and stuff that you wouldn't be able to see. So on the, on, the pod, on the podcast notes, I've put a picture of one of my pictures of the Pac-Man nebula, and I've also yeah. done a version in Hubble palette. And it does look lovely, doesn't it? A lovely green and blue and yellow yeah so you can see slightly more detail in the Hubble palette version nebulas are ace they're so just so they're just so beautiful to look at I mean you know we were swooning over Saturn's rings and I think that next to them it's got to be nebulas isn't it I always like to refer to M42 the great Orion nebula Mm. as the Taj Mahal of the night sky as in you Uh don't need to go on holiday you can just Get a telescope and look at this thing and go, this is incredible. Maybe one day they'll have a little bench, you know, in space tourism that we can all go and sit on, like the Taj Mahal, and get our photo taken next to it. I mean, I guess that might be one of the great things about space tourism is the if they sort of take up a sort of really big visual telescope that yeah. people can see when they're out in space and you haven't got the pesky atmosphere, that would be like the best stargazing ever. <laughs> pesky atmosphere you pesky atmosphere you pesky atmosphere get off it's my yard very, no, it's really <laughs> annoying when it comes to <laughs> absorbing and wobbling light that's uh, brilliant jamie i yeah. really want to talk about a thing called asparagus staging ah uh, so this is going to explain why i sang about asparagus and mustard uh, exactly. in the intro <laughs> so uh, my son george as we know is very much into the kerbal space program and he's been rabbiting on about asparagus staging for a while right and i didn't really know what it was and then i was flicking through twitter and i saw a tweet from the international association of astronomical artists the iaaa and they'd tweeted a picture of a of a british um shuttle that was being developed by bac in 1968 and it's like it just looks like three space planes uh sort of sandwiched together and it kind of look, and you think, what's the point of that? And I'm it's looking a, at it now. Thing, wow, that's different. And it, it's called the multi-unit space transport and recovery device. Uh-huh. And actually, these pictures have only kind of recently been declassified because they were just sort of kept in a drawer. Mm. Now, 
this was actually a really uh, it's an ace picture as well and there's so many ace pictures of that of, of mustard it's genius so this this thing worked on a concept at the time that was called tria triamis which is which in in some ways is this asparagus staging yeah and what you do is you have three stages that cross feed uh, uh, so that the outer stages uh, use all their fuel but by the time they jettison off they've left the center stage full of fuel ah okay and and if you put this if you feed that back into the rocket equation you find that they have this really really favorable mass ratio which means that you get uh, uh, that you actually have less of, you, you you can get a much heavier payload into space using this system than you would do otherwise if you just had three cores like for example the delta Four heavy right. has three boosters strapped together, right? Yeah, essentially almost identical to mustard, except not such a fancy uh, spacecraft. Yeah, <laughs> but it's three identical stages strapped together. But it doesn't use crossfeed, so it doesn't have this advantage that a crossfeeding uh, system would have. And the, one of the reasons is because cross-feeding would require really powerful pumps and also you get uh, fluid dynamics that make the rocket unstable and all those sort of things. Oh, that's so, really interesting. I mean, is this, is this something that still happens today? Elon Musk has spoken about Dream. asparagus stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Elon Musk has been speaking about asparagus staging and the Falcon Heavy. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it looks like the Falcon Heavy, although the first few iterations of Falcon Heavy won't use it, uh, that they will try out this um, propellant crossfeed capability and use uh, asparagus stalk. The reason you might be wondering why it's called asparagus staging is because when you strap all all these uh, boosters together, they look a bit like asparagus. That's it, like a bunch of asparagus that's tied together. Yeah. So it was a guy called Ed Keith that uh, kind of first coined the term asparagus staging and this was appeared on page 143 of orbital mechanics by tom logsden and became very and, it, and it's ridiculously popular to use in i'd just like to correct you matt he coined the term asparagus stalk booster oh okay yeah there we go i don't want anyone from ed keith's world <laughs> tweeting in good well well corrected <laughs> so uh, it's really popular with Kerbal Space Program because they don't have to worry about the fluid dynamics so they don't have to worry about uh, fluid going from one boost to the other and making the rocket unstable and they don't have to yeah. worry about the pump being powerful enough to pump this through so it, it's used in Kerbal Space Program as a way of getting heavier payloads out into space so it's, it's quite funny but it does look at though at some point that uh, Falcon Heavy will use this this type of system. So it will be able to carry insanely heavy loads. And if you think about it, what's clever about it is that imagine you've got these three boosters and mm. by the time these three boost the two boosters on the side drop off, you've still got a you've fully got a fresh. you've got a fully fueled yeah. Falcon 9 that's already miles miles high travelling at extremely fast speeds. And and that's where it's starting. So you can you can clearly see it doesn't see. have the kind of gravity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so it's clearly got this uh, a ridiculous payload capability at that point. I mean, it's that just ace. yeah, it's really really cool, isn't it? So yeah, so that, that, so, so I think this mustard thing is the earliest adva- is the earliest example of, of asparagus staging I can find, which I think. Well, so if if you know of an earlier 
uh, design concept that has an earlier version of asparagus staging, please let me know. But I bet it won't look as cool as mustard does. We're going to place that bet. That is a gauntlet and a half. <laughs> that is an asparagus gauntlet. Yeah. So what's happened in the news, Jamie? Well, I would like to speak about astronomers uh, discovering the first white dwarf pulsar in history, ending half a century of searching. So where did, where did they find it? Where, where have they found this white dwarf pulsar? So AR SCO is about 380 light years away from Earth in the Scorpius constellation. It has two stars, a very rapidly spinning former star known as White Dwarf Pulsar and an actual star known as a Red Dwarf um, locked together in a 3.6 hour orbit. So that's that's spinning pretty fast, isn't it? I wonder if I wonder if we'll ever have a gravity wave detector that's that's sensitive enough to pick up that rotation, or if they or if indeed there is a, a sort of gravity gravitational wave off that. See, this is a very small thing that, but it will absolutely rip you to shreds just using its magneticism. Whoa, magnetism! <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought I'd give you something to correct me on, you know. A plus. What else has been happening? Remember, we talked. Uh, we've talked several times about the Japanese space agency's uh, tether mission that, that was was being used to uh, get rid of s- uh, space junk. Oh yeah. And Jonathan McDowell again. He he uh, mentioned it and had actually. He was the first person that I heard talking about that it may have failed. It has indeed didn't work. Unfortunately, uh, the the tether didn't get released properly, and now they've run out of time. So, unfortunately, that experiment did not happen. But I, I guess that they've probably learnt a lot of lessons from that and they'll give it another go the next time we have one of those Japanese um, freighter missions to the ISS, I guess. Oh, let's hope so. Onwards and upwards. I'm, I'm, I have to apologise for the drumming. I, this is the first time I've been in this room and, and, and there's been that, this kind of noise. How irritating. I like it. It's like it's kind of tribal. It's making the podcast tribal. I'll tell you what. I, I, here's a story that I thought was pretty interesting. The federal investigators have found persistent cracks mm. in the turbo pumps in a Falcon 9 rocket. That doesn't sound good. Yeah, turbine wheel cracks. Um, uh, which which uh, wouldn't make them safe enough for crewed spaceflight. So there's a big worry there. So according to John Taylor, a SpaceX representative, yeah. he told The Verge that they are modifying the design to avoid to avoid these cracks altogether. Uh, and that will be the final part design of the final iteration of the Falcon 9. Uh, and they're working with NASA to uh, qualify the engine for crewed spaceflight. Wow. So that's one to keep an eye on because that's, uh, that's potentially a, a, a big banana slip up there. Yeah, uh, let's keep an eye on that. I did notice that there was a company that um, are going to launch a, a balloon flight and a high-altitude skydive. Ah, this dur- is the start-up people. Yeah, yeah uh, during a solar eclipse. So two, the 2017 solar eclipse, they're going to take people up in a balloon to see it. And then, and then the people jumping out of the balloon are going to beat Felix uh, Baumgartner's 2012 oh, high-altitude like jet. No. And anyway, so dangerous. I, I still think that's the most dangerous thing I've ever seen when he was oh, like... When he was spinning. I mean, just pretty, I did feel like he got lucky. <laughs> My final bit of the news, and I just thought this was amazing, on the, on the ESA website, the European Space Agency website, yeah. uh, there was, they were showing pictures of uh, 
blue streaks coming out the top of lightning from the International Space Station. Yeah. And I just thought this was incredible. So uh, one of the astronauts on the International wow. Space Station, Andreas Mogensen, uh, mm. he, he, during his mission in 2015, took some pictures of thunderstorms with very sensitive cameras and uh, managed to capture these blue jets uh, that come out uh, 40 kilometers out of the top of these uh, massive thunder wow what is it well i don't i don't know but it, it's like it, there's there's loads of phenomena that happens during a lightning storm that goes back up into space you get these blue streaks and these red streaks and and dark lightning there's loads of stuff it's really really god that looks it looks so yeah, so but you, but it's yeah, but the, the pictures of it are incredible and the and the video uh, that he he does a presentation for ESA on on their website mm. and, and the video is just incredible. It's absolutely amazing. So this is the first I'm looking yeah, at it now. The first it's look at, and it's the first kind of picture of these particular phenomena. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, how cool is that? Check it out, peeps. What have we got coming up space launch wise? We've talked about them before actually because it, it should be happening this week. Is um, on February the fourteenth. This triple triple day of uh, of joy. We've got America, Europe, and India in action. And it's Valentine's Day, so it's quadruple. Whoa, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So SpaceX uh, doing an ISS mission, cargo delivery, uh-huh. the 10th one, um, up to the International Space Station. Um, uh-huh. So that's been super delayed from November the 21st. Be good to get that going. Of course, the exciting thing about that is it's from Pad 39A. The famous Apollo and shuttle pad in Kennedy Space Center, Florida. And on the same day, we have Ariane 5. And Ariane 5 carrying a couple of satellites again. Um, and that's going from its usual Kourou um, launch site. Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and we that's also, a joke. It's just unbelievable. And we also have uh, the Indian, uh, Indian PSLV. Yes, one of my personal favourites. Go on, India. Other, another Kato Sat 2D. Sick. Oh, look, they're doing um, Beatles cover. Oh, I tell you what, if you're going to be disturbed by anything, it's not a bad tune. <laughs> no, there we go. Come on, that mustard we got. Asparagus nebulae we got. And <laughs> <laughs> definitely would have fit. <laughs> Much better. Right, OK, well, on that note... Thanks very much for listening. And, Literally. And next week Thank we're, you, peeps. we're talking to uh, an asteroid expert, so this should be fun. Absolutely. We're going to be speaking to Debbie. Incredible. Yeah. Look forward to that. So awesome. So, guys, thanks very much for joining us again. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, leave us some feedback. Uh, you know, give us five stars. Go on. See and, you next week. And 22. See you next week. Bye bye everyone. Cheers. This is bye. Bye.